Today on the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. I am Kim Ann Curtin. We're all overwhelmed. I am an executive coach and we're all struggling with the demands of this time. The reporters who covering the collapse of Wall Street called me the Wall Street coach. People were fired on the spot. This podcast will give you tools to cope. One man had been fired weeks earlier and kept going to work because he couldn't bear to tell his family and tools that help you find more peace of mind. So the five practices, self-responsibility, self and other empathy. People are not really good at giving themselves empathy. Emotional connection. Learning how to be with what's hard to be with. Embracing your inner hero. We're all each on a heroic journey. And mindfulness. Learning how to be and not do. What I hope this podcast does is facilitate people being more gentle with themselves. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed is good. Don't confuse greed with desire. You don't have to exploit other people to get what you want. Having desire is good. Let me tell you something. There is no nobility in poverty. Money has become this powerful symbol for wealth. So you can have all the money in the world, and if you don't have peace of mind, you are not going to be a happy camper. I don't lie to myself. I don't hold on to a loser. The moment it doesn't feel right, I let it go. Get away from it. Oh, it's so easy to lie to ourselves, whether it's holding on to a losing position in a trade or in our life. Our ego does not like to be wrong, but that lie will cost us each and every time. The Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Aloha, everyone. I have wanted to do a podcast for probably nine years. So I'm very excited to be here today uh, with my partner in crime, Glenn Oslin. Uh, he enrolled me in getting this done and his technical and IT skills uh, and wisdom are the only reason I can pull this off. So I'm very grateful to you, Glenn. Thanks. <laughs> I think really what I hope this podcast does is it facilitates people uh, being more gentle with themselves. I think for the most part, what I see in common with all the clients I've ever worked with and just friends and colleagues uh, in general is that we're all kind of overwhelmed and we're all struggling with how to cope with the demands of this time in our lives. And there's a lot of information coming at us. There's a lot of noise uh, out there. Some of the noise is valuable, some of it isn't. Uh, but I really hope that what this podcast will do is give you tools to cope and tools that help you uh, find more peace of mind and find yourself more awake and more conscious because I think the more conscious and awake we become, uh, there's less drag like a swimmer in a pool. Uh, so hopefully that's what these will uh, do for you. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about myself and who I am and what my background is for those that don't know who I am. But before I do that, Glenn, I'm going to ask you to just speak to a couple of uh the unusual journeys you've had so people know who you are uh, and especially uh, your folklore background because of my love for mythology and why I think that's so valuable. So please tell us a little bit who you are and what you've sure. been up to with your podcast. So my, my unusual experiences is what you're interested in, huh? <laughs> um, well, it's not your usual too, but... <laughs> yeah. So my background, uh, uh, as you mentioned, um, with, with folklore, I, I have a master's degree and I went through a, a PhD program almost, 
almost got the PhD. I started writing my dissertation and then I, I jumped into the business world, worked for a medical device company uh, for 13 years um, instead of finishing the, the dissertation and finishing the PhD. But, you know, so people, when they hear folklore, they think that it's about uh, telling stories or like urban legends, or they think that I'm a storyteller and that's a, it's about performance and performing folklore. Or a lot of times people will, will bring a story to me and they'll say, hey, I've heard this. Is that true? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome, but it's also annoying because the, it's, it's not, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. What matters is the value that people give it and the meaning that it provides in people's lives. Because that meaning and that value is real. That's true, whether the story that brings that meaning and value is true or not. Then a couple of years ago, I started podcasting uh, for a living. And uh, that's what I do now. I produce podcasts and then met you a couple months ago. You did some things for another podcast that I work on and thought, you know, Kim, you should have your own podcast. You've got a lot to say and a lot to offer to people. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. It's awesome. I, I, I'm not sure I have this quote right, but Joseph Campbell, uh, I think, said something about, you know, whether it happens or not doesn't mean it can't be true. And sure. I think there's some really valuable truth to that. And I think it's a little hard to wrap your head around that concept initially when you start to maybe dive into mythology or to folklore. But uh, ultimately, I think you begin to see that. And, and that, I think, takes a little bit of courage to stand in a place of, um, it's not as defined, it's not as dogmatic, if you will. And I think, you know, we, we are built to like dogma, we're built to like certainty. We like black and we like white, you know, yeah. not gray and shades of gray. And I think the shades of gray is where, you know, maybe we need to get more comfortable in, in living there. And that's what I think folklore and mythology can do for us, for sure. And spirituality for that matter. So yeah, so okay, so, so thank you for telling us who you are. Um, a little bit of who you are, certainly not all of who you are. Uh, I am uh, Kim Ann Curtin. I uh, am an executive coach. I started coaching almost 13 years ago, maybe a little over 13 years ago. Uh, I worked in finance uh, for almost 10 years prior to starting a company called The Wall Street Coach. I hired an executive coach uh, early in uh, 2000, I think it was, and it was transformative. And after experiencing the executive coaching, I felt really called to become an executive coach. And mythology- How long, how long did you do that, Kim? How long were uh, you being coached? I think, well, gosh, I mean, then probably lasted about a year, but I've been systematically coached since then, nonstop. You know, maybe I take off a couple of months here and there, but I have consistently had either a coach or a spiritual teacher uh, constantly working at developing myself. If, if there's one thing I felt that was in my client's best interest, I saw that the more that I was with things that held me back, the more effective I was as a coach. Yeah. So, you know, my accountant almost every year says, I have never seen anybody who <laughs> spends more money on personal development than you, Kim. And I'm like, I got a lot. I, I asked for therapists when I was 10 years old actually, because I needed to get me some tools early for the household I was in. So, you know, I'm committed to self-development 
And I'm one of those people who would rather be in truth than in comfort, which, you know, is not everybody's choice, but that's the choice that I have. So, uh, but the, you know, if we go back to Joseph Campbell and the impact he had on me, I saw him in The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers, uh, probably, I think, what was that, 1986 when that was airing on PBS? It's one of the most uh, popular PBS series of all time. And actually, in it, he talks about finding your bliss. Now, you know, I'm 21 years old, 20, and uh, my sister and I loved it so much. We got the cassette tapes, and we used to listen to Campbell. It's six hours long. We used to listen to him in our bedroom, like going to sleep at night, all the storytelling. Wow. He's one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. Um, and he talked about finding your bliss. And even though I loved what I did in finance, even though I loved uh, the strategy, uh, the level of perfectionism, super intelligent people, it was like every day was a chessboard in front of you uh, or five chess games in front of you. Uh, it, it, I knew that that bliss, that, that it wasn't my bliss. Like I knew I was good at it. I was well compensated, very generously compensated. But there was part of me that knew it wasn't my bliss, but I couldn't find it. So I was looking all the time for it. And then I literally was in uh, the Dean and DeLuca uh, coffee shop in Borders Books and Music in the Time Warner Center. And I was talking to the coach that I was thinking about hiring, Kate Rothsky. And what and year was this? This was, let's see, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. Okay. So yeah, 14 years ago. Um, and she she started to describe CTI, the Coaches Training Institute, was her curriculum, how she had been trained. It, and as I heard her describe what happened in coaching and the style in which this function would happen for me, I can only say that it felt like the heavens opened and the angels sang. It was just like this bolt of lightning went right through me. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is the bliss. It was just instant knowing now 14 years ago. And I have not once, no matter how hard it has been <laughs> being an entrepreneur, I have never once doubted that that is what I was going to do. Wow. What, what did she tell you? What did she say about coaching that turned you on so much? You know, I don't even know if I can remember or articulate what the words were. It was something to the effect, though, of how coaching holds you naturally creative, resourceful, and whole and therapy which i had had often held you as though you needed to be fixed and it was the context of finding out that everything we do is in service to patterns we've learned in our you know childhood or our lives and so that these are all coping mechanisms that may not serve you now, but that doesn't mean that they didn't serve you then. Mm. And it, it was just a radically different way of holding somebody uh, and seeing them be able to, it, it, it's almost, there, there's a, a quote that talks about, you know, you, you don't treat people as they are, you treat them as you see them becoming. And that's the essence of that, I think I picked up in that initial conversation, that she was gonna be able to see me not as I was in this moment, but what was what I was capable of, the possibility of me if I got rid of what was dragging me down. Uh, and I met her initially at a high ropes course. Uh, I have a bit of a fear of heights. I, I mean, 
let's just say I have a fear of heights of standing on a rope high up in the forest. Like that is not my cup of tea, but I did it because I could see I had a lot of resistance and it was during that high ropes course that I met her. And that's when the conversation began. So all from that high ropes course and the way that she helped me and another coach that was on site that day, they were simultaneously pushing me way beyond my comfort zone while also meeting me with empathy that if I needed to stop and it was too much for myself, I could. So it was the most amazing way to be held of like somebody saying, you can do this. And yet also understanding that you may have hit your wall. So there was room for me to go left or right. It was ultimately my choice. And because of the way they held me, you know, emotionally or, you know, kind of spiritually, if you will, I did it because I knew I wasn't going to be shamed if I couldn't do it. But I also saw they were like, you got this. And then I was able to see that I did have it and I was able to go forward. So it was, I think, all of that together. You you said something when you were comparing it to therapy that kind of kind of hit me that you, you and so I want to see if I got this this right you said that therapy took the approach is that you're somehow broken and that you need to be fixed whereas it sounds like what you were saying about coaching is that every experience you've ever had has brought you to the point where you are right now and 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 look at this trajectory look at this path look where it could lead you yes and so don't feel shame that you're not there right now it doesn't mean that you're broken Yes. But look what you look what you've experienced, look what you've accomplished, look what you could do if you really focus and put your mind to it. And that that's kind of the difference. Totally. And if you, think, cool. if you think about how you respond to things, let, let's say you react to things, right? And that's not how you want to be. Well, before you can change it, you first have to acknowledge that that actually once served you, that kept yeah. you safe at one point. Knowing how to do that or you know, kind of reconfigure yourself to handle somebody challenging in your childhood, that saved your past in a way. And now it potentially cost you because this, the environment's not the same. The people aren't the same. But that takes some getting used to. So first you have to have empathy for yourself and say, wow, that really served me then. Now, not so much. And then you can, you know, first have empathy for the fact that that is there, that kind of reaction is there. And then by accepting it, noticing it, uh, observing it, you can then move in the direction of transcending, transcending for sure. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, so it's been an interesting journey and, um, I am still coaching people, uh, now and I have a team of coaches and I'm very fortunate to have some amazing coaches on my team that, you know, have also been coaches for a long time. And I live in Hawaii now. So that was like, you know, a major kind of life change that also I didn't really see coming. Uh, but I lived in New York City, you know, before I moved here. And uh, yeah. Why, why'd they call you the Wall Street coach? Where'd that name come from? They, they call me the Wall Street coach because I sat outside the stock exchange on October 7th, 2008, which happened to be the day the market dropped about 500 points, which is, mm. is I found that to be a really interesting uh, that I'm doing this today. The market dropped yesterday a huge, even more than that. I think it was 767 or something like that. Um, so I had struggled. I had started the business a year and a half prior. I didn't have a focus on finance, you know, professionals. I really was just focused on coaching anybody. I thought I didn't have to niche. You know, everybody said you have to niche. And I thought, oh, I'll be one who's different. I don't have to niche, but you so need to niche. 
uh, so naivete. And, and basically, business was slow. I, I had done initially okay that first year, but the summer of 08, things were not going so well. I was very nervous financially because I'd walked away from you know, a great salary. And I could see that people were cutting. I, I was already seeing the crisis of 08 happening in the air. It was already showing up and people not doing any kind of superfluous income. I think uh, coaching is, a, is, is uh, a necessity, but I think some people see it as a luxury. And at the time, undoubtedly, that was what was going on. So the uh, decision came from a car ride back from Jones Beach with a girlfriend of mine who heard me moaning about business. And she said, you know, I had done this free hugs movement. This guy, one man had started you know, a couple of years back. So I did a free hugs uh, experience in New York every uh, year, the Sunday after Thanksgiving with a group of people. And my girlfriend said, you know, that free hugs movement, uh, what if you did free coaching? And I was like, that sounds crazy. And I was like, but I am desperate. Like I need to do something. And, and I just thought, well, where would I bring the free coaching if I did that? And the first place came to me was the stock exchange. Like, where is there, you know, the heart epicenter of finance? And I thought, well, I certainly know those people and how tense it is on a good day. They must not be, you know, thrilled right now because things are not going so well. But of course, who knew that that was the day the market would drop so mm -hmm. significantly. So I went there not only that day, but for pretty much every week thereafter for about a year. But within a couple of weeks, uh, of course, that first day even, uh, the reporters were covering the, you know, the collapse of Wall Street and the reporter, uh, reporters that kept coming up to me, one of them interviewed me as I was coaching people there on the bench doing 20-minute sessions and he called me the Wall Street coach. In I keep picturing Lucy from Charlie Brown with the little sign and the lemonade stand. Is that what you had with the, the coaches in? The coaches in. And it looked a lot like Lucy sign. I even put the square box over the in. Really? To make <laughs> her because I thought that's what this is like. It's like her, you know, her little stand for advice. And uh, You don't pull the football away when people try to kick it, do you? You like set them up for failure and then just rip, it, rip it away. You don't do that? All right. pull the football away. So it was just one of those things where, honestly, if it wasn't the – if the chaos down there and the, and the, you know, the crisis that hit, if that didn't take place, I, I don't, you know, I wore a really nice cashmere coat, cashmere pad. Like I looked as dressed up as I could possibly look because I thought people are going to think I'm crazy. I mean, I'm kind of crazy, but they're going to think I'm a lunatic. And that day though, honestly, and thereafter that whole time, people, I don't think in their normal right mind would have approached me. They did because they were desperate to talk to somebody. And, you know, some people were fired on the spot. One man had been fired weeks earlier and kept going to work as though he still had the job because he couldn't bear to tell his family. There was just a lot of tears and frustrations, fear that was down there. So it was, it was meant to be. And then, you know, after that article came out, uh, I remember checking, you know, going to godaddy.com. It was like the Wall Street coach. Is that, can I buy that domain? <laughs> and there it was $8.50. And I was like, wow, but you know, now I have a trademark. So yeah, so it felt like kismet. Like that was what I was, that was the direction I was meant to go. I just didn't see it for myself. I don't think I would have had the moxie to call myself the Wall Street coach. So obviously the universe kind of stepped in and pointed me in the right direction, which is done many times when I'm, you know, over here and I need to be over here. So, yeah. so yeah.
So what, what do you feel like your impact as a coach has been like for, for those people on that day when you were doing it for free and then for clients that you've had since then, in, in what ways do you help them? I think I give people just a little bit of spaciousness. You know, I think if anything, I teach them how to get their oxygen uh, that they can't maybe find uh, the mask in the middle of the crisis. Uh, I think whenever there's turmoil or chaos, which often is what pushes somebody towards coaching, and when I think back to the people that day who are in the crisis, people are, you know, you're not breathing, literally not breathing, and emotionally, you're, you're not getting any of your needs met. So first, it's about empathy, learning how to give yourself some empathy, learning how to give yourself some space to feel the feelings you're having, panic, fear, uh, anger, all of those things kind of need to be felt, but we need to, I think we've been taught that those hard to be with feelings are not acceptable in our culture and our society. So I think what I give people do most of all is I give them permission to be a feeler of their feelings. And when you're a feeler of your feelings, even though that could be very hard, it is it's, it's like the pus of the wound that comes out. If you stop the feelings, if you push the feelings down or numb the feelings out, then you're not going to be able to discharge the very uh, infection that needs to be discharged. So if that's anything I hope that I am constantly giving to people. It's just a little breathing room, a little empathy, and the room and space to just feel their feelings without feeling like they need to uh, get over it really quick. So you said, you said earlier that you think that everybody should uh, use a coach, that, that, that coaching should be a necessity and not a luxury. Um, what is it that you are able to do to, to help people feel their feelings that people aren't able to do on their own? And why is this something that somebody could just look in a mirror and do the Stuart Smalley? Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. So I, I make Saturday Night Live references every once in a while. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. I, like, what, what is it that, that uh, the coaching does uh, that people can't do on their own? It's a great question. I don't, I think we are built to be in community. I don't think we can do this simply on our own. We are built uh, for connection with another human being. And I think we need to have another human being see us and acknowledge us. Uh, there's a, a beautiful quote from Martin uh, Buber, who is a Jewish theologian, who says, the greatest gift you can give to another human being is your presence. That's it. So that can't be, we can't give ourselves our own presence. Perhaps in meditation we can. Perhaps if we're in a place of that, you know, connecting to the divine, maybe that is when we can be present to our own presence. But I think in the day-to-day -day living uh, and experiencing of things, we, we need to have connection with another human being. It, it, by seeing them, we see ourselves. And that kind of back and forth is part of what I think happens in coaching or, or in any kind of conversation, you know, even empathy, right? Having somebody empathize with us uh, changes our experience. We don't feel as alone or isolated. You know, what is it? No man is an island, right? We're not islands. 
we, we need to be in connection. And, that, and that's part of why I think there's so much pain right now uh, culturally because of social media and connection with the phones, the iPhones and you know, so on and so forth. We're, we're very infrequently looking at one another. Um, you know, they even talk about babies when they're, you know, when infants, if they don't consistently have eye contact with their mother or with the caretakers, they're not going to thrive as, as others would. We, that doesn't go away when we grow up. We still need that eye connection. But it's easy, you know, at least in big cities now, this is part of why I live here in Hawaii, um, in big cities, you can walk down the street, you can walk through your whole office, you can uh, walk to a restaurant and not have anybody look you in the eye. And Apple should trademark that, the, the eye connection app, where, where you just like, you just like stare at somebody's eyes in the, is that, is that that's kind of. It's not gonna work, because it's yeah. not a human being. It's oh, yeah. a machine. It's a machine. I mean, it, it's probably better than nothing, which is what we have now, but honestly, put down the phone, you know, that's what we need to do. And, and not just for our own sake, but for the sake of everyone around us. We need to look at the person in front of us and acknowledge them and see them. And it doesn't mean we have to smile even, maybe it does, but it means we have to be like, I see you. And then they see us in return. And uh, it has, if, if, you, if you find yourself, you know, even just doing that, you know, and people, you know, I used to live in New York City in the subway, you know, in, in the mornings at rush hour, you're crammed up against people. And there's, you know, that sense of trying to uh, not invade people's personal space because you're all in each other's space. But, you know, maybe it's not the guy right here who's in front of you, but maybe it's the woman over there who's, you know, a couple of uh, feet away. You know, you can just give her a smile because you're all standing cramped in there waiting for your stop. You know, there's small ways that you can do that that won't feel compromising. Uh, but it can, make, it can make your day. It really can. Just a nice smile from a stranger or a connection of some sort. We, we're certainly not getting that enough. Uh, there, I, I'm a big fan of Esther, uh, Esther Peril. She's a relationship uh, expert. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Can't say enough good things about her. And she, is set, she asked this question in a talk I watched the other day, and she said, how many people sleep with their phones next to their bed? And how many people stroke their phone when they wake up in the morning. And then she took it further and she said, how many people stroke the phone first if they, and you have somebody laying next to you in your bed? And then she was like, that's fucked up. If you're stroking your phone in your bed with somebody sitting next to you before you stroke that human being or connect to that human being. And I thought, wow, that just, it just says it all, you know? So it, it takes practice, right? This is, we, we're all addicted now whether we like it or not, to the phones. But uh, I would say that connection is, is key to why you may be not feeling at your best. So how do, you, how do you create that connection when you work with clients through the internet? Because I know you do things through Zoom or Skype, and, yeah. and it's not always the person-to-person the -person connection that you're able to create. I mean, even this podcast, yeah. um, you know, you're, you're creating something that's going directly into people's heads through their ear holes. Yeah. Um, and, and in my experience, there's, there is a sense of community that can develop, a, a sense of connection that can develop um, well, in, it's in those kinds of sense. It's still connection, right? So I'm ideally saying we all need human connection of looking one another in the eyes. However, that isn't always possible. 
and you can have a conversation with somebody. There are actually some clients who prefer to do their coaching without the uh, video because mm -hmm. they feel they get deeper uh, because there's nobody looking at them or they're able to just speak more freely, if you will. Um, I liken it, you know, I think back to, uh, I was raised, you know, in my early childhood Roman Catholic and I remember the confessional box. You know, the confessional box was initially built because people didn't want to have to look in the eye, right? They were, he was, the priest was supposedly representing God. And it was this concept of like being able to confess it without having to look at somebody, right? And just not be as ashamed. And I think sometimes the same is true when you coach with somebody just by phone, uh, they're, they're, there's no distraction of the visual, but connection, presence continues. So it's, it's not about whether or not that client can see me, but even if they're on uh, just audio or they're, you know, we're just on the phone together, they can feel my presence. I'm not multitasking, which pretty much everybody is doing when you talk to them these days. So, and I, and I request the client to not multitask either so that they can be present to the connection that we're creating together. We're co-creating that connection. Kim, what do you hope that listeners are going to get out of the, this podcast and what it is that you have to share with them? My hope is that the people who listen to this podcast will find a community of like-minded thoughts that they, that they won't feel as isolated in their quest for meaning, uh, even though they may have a lot of the trappings of success. Uh, they are still looking for meaning and they're still looking for uh, deeper conversations, maybe some philosophical conversations, while still having practical uh, tips and tricks to navigate what life throws us. You know, whether what, it, what do you mean by trappings of success? What are what are those? You know, the, there's a lot of people who I've worked with who have you know the car they've always dreamed of, or the penthouse, or you know the lifestyle. They they get to go on holidays. They get to uh, do things that maybe in their childhood or in their younger years they never could have imagined. And yet there's still the sense of peace of mind eludes them. And I understand that because having your want met and not having your need met are two different things. You know, I've had people say to me, you know, that they got a very expensive sailboat, for example. And that sailboat didn't give to them the level of satisfaction they expected it to. And what I asked, this was a person who had recently retired. Uh, I asked him if he got his need for respect met when he got that sailboat. And he sort of gasped and he said, is that why I got the sailboat? And I said, possibly we're going to look into that a little bit. And he paused and he thought about it. And he was like, no, I didn't get my need for respect met. Now, this is a person who had run a company. He had had respect every day, and now he's been retired. So he wasn't experiencing what is a universal need to just experience respect. And he thought maybe having that boat and the guys, you know, that hung out at the club that all owned boats, that he'd start to get that respect again. Now, this was not conscious. It was unconscious. But he was sitting here now with a boat that he really didn't give a damn about, and he couldn't understand why. Well, it was because he, he wanted the boat thinking it would meet his need for respect. And once he understood what need was really driving him, his ability now to get that need for respect met was way more uh, possible as opposed to thinking, you know, you just fill that hole. What I liken this to getting our wants met and not our needs met is 
uh, Chinese takeout. <laughs> in New York City, whenever you got Chinese takeout, it was so good in the moment, but you were hungry an hour later. And that's what I say about your wants. You can get that want that you really, really are saying it's so important to you, but as soon as you do, if it isn't really gonna meet the need that you have, it, you're gonna be hungry an hour later, no yeah. matter how much you've done. You, you said two words that I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about. One, one of them, the trappings of success. Why, why do you use that word, trappings? And then the other thing you talked about was, was getting peace of mind. Mm. And what, what, is, what is peace of mind? How do you know when you have it? And like, yeah. what, what is that all about? Well, I'll say what you do know is when you don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> peace of mind when you don't have it looks like sleepless nights, looks like not being able to fall asleep, looks like uh, overindulging in things that you know are probably not good for you. Uh, they are you know, you'll, you'll engage more in the things that numb us, you know, uh, and numbing is not always alcohol or drugs. Numbing sometimes is exercise. Numbing can be work. Uh, numbing can be shopping. Numbing can be, uh, you know, constantly moving and not being able to stay still. Numbing comes in lots of forms, but it, you're consistently numbing or doing something that takes you out of the discomfort of the moment then undoubtedly you don't have as much peace of mind as, as possible. Uh, but that, you know, is hard to, it's hard to navigate because people are searching for that peace of mind and you get it when you numb. So that initial first drink or that initial, uh, you know, credit card purchase on Amazon or that initial, you know, project that you bury yourself in will numb and give you a little bit of immediate kind of jolt of peace of mind, but it just doesn't ever seem to be a last or never seems to be enough. Um, and then the trappings, you know, I, I think I use that word uh, and it's informed probably by the golden handcuff syndrome. Golden handcuffs are when, you know, you've, you've, ex you, I experienced that when I left the hedge fund. Uh, golden handcuffs are, you know, you're able, I was able to go out to dinner four or five nights a week in Manhattan and go to the most incredible restaurants and have the most unique kind of cocktails and wear beautiful clothing. And it's lovely. It's really fun to be able to buy a beautiful pocketbook. I have pocketbooks of my, you know, kind of Achilles heel. I'm just a sucker for a new purse. And, you know, these are the golden trappings, you know, and, and what happens, I, I'm fortunate, you know, I didn't, when I made the decision to become an entrepreneur, I didn't have a family depending on me. It was, you know, me, myself, and I, but the people who are used to these high salaries for them to walk away, you know, they're not going to be able to afford private school for the kid anymore. Uh, their wife probably likes being able to go to the, you know, the, the salon or the spa, or, or the husband is used to, you know, taking lots of courses if the wife is supporting the family. You know, there's, there's a lifestyle kind of level of what you are used to, but they are handcuffs because you're like, well, then we have to stop going to, you know, the vineyard or the Hamptons on, on, in the summers because we can't afford it if we, if we let go of this salary, if you will. So the handcuffs, the golden handcuffs or the trappings are part of why we stay there, you know? It was it was hard for me too, and I and I had a moment after I became an entrepreneur where I got a call. It was probably three months in from a headhunter, because I had worked at probably one of the largest hedge funds in the world, and uh, you know I was in a very unique role, and it was I was I was in a position where I could have really gone anywhere. And this headhunter, you know, she quote unquote was a friend, but in that moment I was like, she just left a commission, which would have been nice and juicy if she placed me in this position. But it was 
it was the mother load. It was, you know, chief of staff for a man who had a global company. I would have been at the table at important meetings as a strategist with him. I would have been flying on his private jet. I would have been managing his private art collection. I mean, kill me now. These are all the things that like totally would have been so exciting. And it was, you know, the most incredible salary. And I remember having that moment, like, should I take this? Should I go this route as I was just starting my entrepreneurship? Because I thought, God, I'm not going to make that kind of salary as an entrepreneur, not in the first year anyway. And it was that temptation of the golden handcuffs, you know, that means I get to still live this lifestyle. Uh, and if I become an entrepreneur, you know, I'm going to learn how to have to cook, which I really don't want to learn how to cook. I didn't eat cooking. And it was like this moment of like, this is a lifestyle I'm saying goodbye to if I go forward with entrepreneurship. So that's golden handcuffs and trappings. That is brave. That is brave. <laughs> or crazy or both. I don't know. <laughs> I called Father Tom. He's the man I dedicate the book to. He was a, a Catholic priest that really became, you know, a father figure to me. And uh, I was just devastated. That I, I won't even say the headhunter's name. I almost said her name. But she was just like, it was like, you know, putting filet mignon in front, in front of like, you know, a rabid dog. And, she, and I was like, I can't believe, I've just started my business. How could you do this to me? Her name is Heidi. I'm going to just say her name, get back at her a little. I was like, Heidi, like, what are you doing to me? I just started. And she's like, I know, but it's just the most amazing offer. And I was like, the hell with the offer for me. You just want your commission on this because I knew it was going to be a big commission. Mission. And she's like, no, no, I just, how could I not call you with this opportunity, Kim? And I was just like, oh my God, just devastated. So I'm 24 hours, I'm like going through the pros and the cons, the pros and the cons. And then I called Father Tom and I was just like hysterical. I was crying because I thought, am I being irresponsible to walk away from this unbelievable salary? It was like, you know, more than double what I was already making when I walked away from my hedge fund. So I was just like, what am I doing? Am I out of my mind? And uh, I just, poured my heart out to Father Tom, and I was like, what do I do, what do I do? And he was just paused, you know, he'd have these big pauses, and he just was like, I think you have to follow your heart. If your heart says you're born to be a coach, then you gotta do that. And I just burst into tears, and I was like, that's exactly what I wanna do, but I just was afraid to give myself that permission. And uh, thank God for him. So yeah, that was that moment. That was one of those pivotal forks in the road where I, went the road less traveled for sure <laughs> so kim what can the listeners expect to hear you're gonna you're gonna do six episodes at first what are these episodes going to be about they're going to be about my five practices that are discussed in the book that i wrote called transforming wall street a conscious path for a new future uh, this book features 50 men and women who succeeded in the finance industry who i felt had expressed and displayed integrity and a sense of consciousness about how they work, how they live. Uh, so the five practices, we're gonna kind of dive deeper into what each one of them means, uh, how I saw these 50 living it. And the, these are the five that inevitably show up in my coaching with anybody that I work with. And they inevitably are uh, part of my life. They, they are the five practices I strive to practice and uh, no matter who I coach, inevitably what shows up can be addressed by one of these five. So I feel that these five are uh, kind of the keys to the kingdom. If you are able to understand these five and practice these five, 
I feel they have the solution you're looking for. One or more of them have the solution pretty much everybody is looking for. Uh, I think they could also be called sort of sacred wisdom practices. They might be called something different in the sacred wisdom uh, of you know all the different kind of world's religions or spiritual practices, but uh, I'll speak to them now and then everybody can kind of you know interpret them their own way. Okay. Uh, the, the first practice is self-responsibility. Uh, and I learned about self-responsibility thanks to uh, Werner Erhard and his course, Landmark, Landmark Forum, Landmark Education. Uh, I did Landmark about a year before I hired a coach, and undoubtedly Landmark was a big part of why I hired a coach. Uh, I went into Landmark uh, somewhat resistant. I had two good friends who enrolled me in doing it. Uh, it was a three-day intensive. Maybe it's $600. It's the most bang for your buck you're ever going to get. So if you want to till the soil, on yourself and your journey, and you want to have something that's going to kind of shake you up, uh, I highly recommend Lama. Uh, do I agree 100% with everything they do? No, uh, but there's so much value there in such a short amount of time for people. It just tills the soil. It just really will kind of pull everything up. Self-responsibility is what I learned in that course, and what that means is that you take 100% responsibility for uh, – how you live your life. And, and what does that mean? It, it, I can say it's the antithesis of being or feeling like a victim. It's realizing that actually uh, you can live in possibility as opposed to living in a place of what, what happened to you. Uh, it was radical for me at the time. I uh, did not, I can remember the, uh, it was like three, three nights in or two nights in, I had my friends show up who were there to encourage me. They took, I was so unhappy. I was this close to leaving. I was pissed. It, it just like really was pushing my ego to the edge. And I was angry. And they walked in and my girlfriend Elizabeth, she had a rose and, and my friend Todd. And they both took one look at my face and she like put the rose behind her back because she was like, oh shit, Kim is pissed. And I just looked at both of them and I was like, I had, Todd had asked me to make him a promise before the course. He was very wise. <laughs> He's like, no matter what happens, Kim, just promise me you'll stay on the ride to the end. He knew I was a woman of my word. I valued, you know, giving my word. So he was like, if you just promise no matter what. And I was like, Todd, I can handle it. He's like, promise, say it out loud. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I promise I'll stay on the ride till the end. Well, if I had not made that promise, I would not have stayed. I was that close to leaving because mm. I was so triggered by it. And uh, anyway, I stayed and my whole life changed because of that course. And that was what pushed me in the direction of uh, becoming a coach. So self-responsibility is, uh, it's, a, it's initially a jagged pill to swallow because it feels like you're, uh, because your head thinks it means accepting blame uh, until you step into the the paradox of taking responsibility is actually the antithesis of taking blame, but uh, that is practice one. And I do speak about that at length and we'll get deeper into that when we record that. Nice. Practice two is uh, self and other empathy. And the teacher that I had for that is a man named Marshall Rosenberg. He passed away a couple of years ago. He created something called nonviolent communication. He speaks to universal needs, but he talks about how incredibly important empathy is. 
And before we're really in a position to give empathy to somebody else, uh, we need to give it to ourselves. And I find that, that is something, no matter what culture you come back, you, you come from, no matter what religious upbringing you've ever had, uh, people are not really good at giving themselves empathy. Uh, practice three is uh, something called uh, emotional uh, connection, right? Learning how to be with what's hard to be with. Learning how to surf, if you will, hard to be with feelings. Sometimes even good feelings are intimidating for people. Uh, love is a good feeling, and that can be very frightening to some people because it might be unfamiliar. Uh, so learning how to be with that. And I learned this, uh, had two teachers, Raphael Kushner, uh, his work is actually called emotional connection. In my book, I misspoke it. I call it actually emotional non-resistance, learning how to be with emotions. Uh, and also a man named Dr. Peter Levine, who, who talks about how feelings, uh, live in the body. And, uh, until we feel them, they just kind of are laying in wait, uh, hoping, one day that maybe we'll give them space to discharge. Uh, practice four is uh, embracing your inner hero, which is informed by Joseph Campbell's uh, work and his belief that each of us are here to be our own heroes and we're all each on a heroic journey. And practice five is mindfulness, uh, stillness, learning how to be and not do, uh, which is something that I still strive every day to, to do because I'm definitely a doer and uh, being can sometimes make me uncomfortable. So I'm very excited about this podcast. I'm very excited to hear what the listening audience uh, wants to hear me talk about. Uh, I would love to have you either in the comments uh, section or email me directly, Kim at the wallstreetcoach.com topics that you'd like me to address or challenges that you want me to kind of take on. Uh, I am really excited to just give tools. So if you're finding yourself in a challenge personally or professionally, have at it, share it with me. Obviously, I'll keep your confidentiality. Uh, happy to give you, you know, any kind of advice that I can uh, directly through this podcast if that's what the audience seems to want. So if that's what you need and you need some advice or some input or some coaching around a topic, uh, late on me. If there's anybody who is interested in learning more about anybody that's in my book, I interviewed over 75 people. Let me know and I'll see if I can get them on the podcast. They have really fascinating stories. So I'm a big fan of quotes and uh, sort of a collector of quotes. And I stumbled upon this one the other day from Janine Roth that I am absolutely so excited about. I just can see it so many places in my life. And the quote is, rebellion is the other side of compliance, but it is not freedom. So, uh, hui ho, as we say in Hawaii, which means until we meet again. And I'm really grateful that you uh, took your precious time, which it is very precious today, and spent it with me and with Glenn. So, thank you for joining us. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Find her on the web at thewallstreetcoach.com and sign up for her newsletter, get a copy of her book, or schedule a time to chat with Kim yourself. And if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been produced by Ear Candy Productions.